And, uh, but we want to turn our hearts uh, to God's Word this morning. In Romans chapter uh, 10, we're just finishing up this chapter hopefully today. And uh, as you turn your hearts and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 21. We started this message two weeks ago before the NorCal Fire Conference. And uh, we uh, uh, got interrupted by that, so we're going to continue and finish, hopefully finish up today uh, the message that's before us. So, um, but I want to read uh, uh, this section of Scripture here in a second for us. But before I do that, I just want us to be reminded of what we have been uh, going through. And here in, in Romans chapter 10, basically, Paul is attempting to ask the, answer the question, why isn't Israel believing in the Christ, the Messiah? And uh, he goes through verse 17 there and says, hearing, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we talked about what they were supposed to be hearing, and that is the gospel. And we asked what the gospel was, and we defined it as the gospel is the perfect life, atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so we started a, a message a couple weeks ago talking about excuses for unbelief, because as Paul was teaching his Jewish fellow brethren there, uh, no doubt hands started to go up and say, well, what about this? What about that? And so he began to kind of pick off these excuses even before they were asked. And uh, these questions even before they were asked, kind of like Christ does when he encounters the religious leaders of the, in the New Testament. A lot of times he'll say, well, I perceive that you, you're going to ask this or, or I perceive this or that. And God supernaturally because he was God, gave him that ability to do that. And so he was able to answer questions that they hadn't even asked yet, but were on their hearts. And so uh, we're, we're going to continue this. And follow along with me as I read there in um, Romans chapter 10, verses 18 to 21. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice, uh, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Remember, Paul here is addressing the unbelief of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people. And in John chapter 1 verse 11, it tells us that Jesus came onto his own and his own received him not. And even in verse 32 of Romans chapter 9, we saw there is why, why aren't the Jews believing? He says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so they were pursuing God through their works of righteousness that they thought they had. And so you stop and you say, well, you know, why was this? Why did they do this? Uh, they couldn't understand the idea that their justification before God was based on faith in Christ and Christ alone. They couldn't understand that. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, they were so blinded to the teachings of their scriptures. Um, they were basically a very proud people and, uh, and I think very traditional in their religion and I think two of the deadliest stumbling blocks to the gospel of Jesus Christ are just that, traditions and self-righteousness. When you think yourself as being righteous and God declares you not, you have a problem. Or if you think that somehow you're going to earn your way to heaven by doing certain traditions or praying for people or lighting candles or Lord knows what people come up with today. These are all traditions. 
they will not save you. But Paul here isn't trying to embarrass the Jewish people. They're his fellow brethren. You know, he points out to them that, hey, if I could swap out my salvation for yours, if I could be damned and, and you could be saved, if that were possible, I would do that. That's how much he cared for these people. And he starts off and he, in chapter 10 there, and he says his heart, his desire and prayer for God is that they might be saved. So he's not trying to embarrass them. He's not trying to make them look bad, even though he does. Because he's sharing the truth with people. And when you share the truth with people, sometimes the truth inflicts pain. It's not easy sometimes to share the truth with people who don't want to hear it. Because they take it as you being self-righteous or they take it as you being judgmental or whatever it might be. But see, that's what we're called to do. And so he wasn't trying to embarrass these folks. He, He basically wanted them to see... Christ for who he was. His desire was that they would come to know the Savior. And we talked a little bit about how, you know, he's very bold in his presentation here, but he is also doing so in love. And sometimes when we speak the truth, um, there's not a whole lot of love. See, we need to be able to speak the truth, but we need to speak it with a loving heart so that we're not just out there offending people so that people get offended. That's not what we're called to do, do, even though the gospel is an offense. The cross is an offense. The Bible points that out. But we're not called to go out and just to offend people for the sake of offending them. And so he pointed out here that not everybody is going to believe the gospel. And we talked a little bit about that. And, and we talked about sometimes we get so caught up in the area of apologetics and so caught up in in sharing our faith and everything, somehow we think that it falls on us to convert the human soul. And the Bible says that's not the way it works. It's God who makes that transformation in somebody's heart. We don't have any power whatsoever to convert somebody. We share the gospel with them. We share the truth. Christ came. He died. Um, He was resurrected. And that he paid for the sins of those who would put their faith and trust in him. We share all that information, but don't ever fall into the trap that thinking somehow because of your ingenuity or your intellect or somehow you have some persuasive argument that nobody's ever heard before, uh, your slick little presentation, your cute little track, whatever it might be, that somehow you're going to go out there and win the world for Christ. If you don't have the Spirit of God, if you don't rely on the Spirit of God to lead you and guide you and give you the power you need, all those things are just going to fall by the wayside. Don't ever forget that if people are saved, they're saved because of God's sovereign grace. People are saved because God's power and grace in their life. He he transformed them. They're not saved by your little debate or your argument. And so we asked the question, well, what are these excuses here? And in in verse 18, we saw the first one, and we're just going to introduce it again. Uh, They didn't hear. And he says there in verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? And we said that that's kind of stated in the original language in a double negative. So you could almost translate it this way. Not that they did not hear. (laughs) He's making a statement. He's asking a rhetorical question. He's doing so because the answer is obviously they heard. And we talked about how he quotes from Psalm 19, Psalm of David, that they're without excuse. That the the very heavens declare the glory of God. See, the gospel wasn't some and is not some hidden code that you have to be really smart and finally figure it out. You know, sometimes when I hear people's testimonies, I, I, I wonder just where they're coming from. Because they'll say things like, yeah, you know, I heard the gospel for years and then I finally figured it out. <laughs> Wait a minute. So it's because of your wisdom and your in, you know, intellect that you came to Christ. Pity the poor souls that haven't figured it out yet. That's not what the Bible says happens when someone comes to Christ. When God saves you, he makes it very clear to you that, you know what, you didn't have a whole lot going on in this deal. That he saved you because of his grace and his love for you. He didn't save you because 
you're a good looking or you could play the piano or, or you could you know, talk or you could do whatever. That's not why he saved you. He saved you because he divinely set his love upon you. Why did he do it? I don't know. I ask that question all the time. I can't come up with an answer. I don't know why. But that's exactly where God wants us. God forbid we should get to heaven someday. And, you know, if it were any other way, we'd be in heaven saying, well, how did you get here? Oh, you know, I figured it out. My intellect was so wonderful. I figured out the gospel. How did, well, I just did all this good stuff and God had to leave me. We'd be bragging and bragging and bragging. See, the only way that we're ever going to get to heaven, beloved, is by the grace of Jesus Christ and putting our faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And God gives us that faith to do it. He gives us that understanding. And so we have to really remember that to believe the gospel is not an option. It's not even a suggestion. It's a command. It's a divine command in Scripture. That's why Paul says, not everybody has what? Believed the gospel? No, he doesn't use that word. He says, obeyed the gospel. Because the gospel is something that needs to be obeyed. And so the first excuse, as we saw, didn't hold up. Well, we come to our text today, verse 19, the second excuse. They did not understand. They didn't understand. Verse 19 says, but I ask, if they heard the gospel, did Israel not understand the gospel? Have you ever been trying to explain something to your kids or somebody, and they just get this quizzical look? And you know they're, you're, they're hearing you, Right? But you say, don't you understand what I'm saying? You know, and you kind of get in their face. You're like, wow, you know. See, we have to understand here that, that that's what they were about to say. Well, yeah, we heard it. We heard that gospel thing, you know. I mean, how could you not hear it? Jesus was all over the place. Everybody knew about Christ back in that time. But you know what? Maybe, maybe we didn't understand it, Paul. They're about ready to raise their hand and say that. And he says, but I ask, did Israel not understand. Now, he does something kind of interesting here. He quotes Moses. He quotes Moses. He says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So did not Israel know these things? Did they not understand these things? What things are we talking about? That they were going to be rejected as a nation at some point in time. And that Israel was going to be basically disciplined and the Gentiles were going to be called into God's divine favor. And so they're saying, Paul, we've never heard this before. What you're telling us as Jews, we've never heard this. And he says, no, you heard it. And don't give me the excuse you never understood it because Moses himself told us about this. And he's quoting out of Deuteronomy all the way back in chapter uh, 32. And so this isn't some new teaching that Paul's kind of inventing on the fly as he's talking to these folks. He's saying, no, this was communicated to you very clearly in the scriptures that you as Jews hold most dearly to your hearts, that you were entrusted with. And so Paul turns first to Moses It's interesting why he chose Moses, because then he goes on and he moves on to Isaiah, and you stop and think about it. What? It's Moses and the prophets. That's what he said in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So for the Jews to say, well, you know, we didn't hear this and we don't understand what you're saying. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Moses himself told you. You're without excuse. Now, if you know anything about Moses, you know that they definitely looked up to Moses. And in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, certain things were made perfectly plain to them. Like the way of salvation. It was made perfectly plain to them in the Old Testament. It was made perfectly plain that the Gentiles were to be included in this salvation. 
It was made perfectly plain to them that the majority of Jews would reject the gospel. All these things were written of in the Old Testament. And the Jews held on to the Old Testament and said, yeah, these are our, this is the law of God he's given to us. And by the rejection of the gospel, they were literally fulfilling Scripture. They were verifying the prophecies of the prophets. And so the Scriptures in which the Jews so much took favor in and delighted in, it convinced them, but it also convicted them of blindness and of sin. And so today... There are even people today, Jews in our society today, that establish their own righteousness. They seek to establish their own righteousness before God. And so the Apostle Paul says, you know what, let's, let's use excuse two and three, and we're going to put this under the, the law and the prophets. We're going to talk about what Moses said, and we're going to talk about what Isaiah said. I mean, if you think about The idea that Moses and the prophets both condemn the Jews for their unbelief. What Paul is saying, you have no right to be ignorant. You have no right to say you didn't hear it. You have no right to say you don't understand. Because the nature of the way of salvation had been made clear. The calling of Gentiles had been made clear to them. They didn't want to hear it. They rejected it. But it had been made clear to them in the teachings of the law and the prophets. And so Paul asks the question here. He says, well, let me start off here. First of all, I ask, did, not, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, he's quoting that. That says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, Paul is just touching kind of on the, that whole idea in, back in Romans. But what he's doing here is he's using their, their, their pride, their, their boastfulness of who Moses was because they, they thought he was above everybody else. Him and Abraham were the, the key guys in their religion. But even Moses more so because Moses was the guy that what? Stood before God. The burning bush, remember? He got the, got the law. I mean, that was an incredible thing. And so he was this great lawgiver. And they, they, they basically worshipped this guy. He led the people out of captivity of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. And so the Jews always looked either back to Abraham or Moses. But here Paul uses Moses. And if he can establish the idea that, you know what, Moses prepared you for this. This isn't something I'm coming up with. This is something that Moses already taught you. Then basically he's dismantling their whole argument. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, you have to look at that text and understand what's really going on here. What, just to summarize it, okay, because we don't have time this morning to go into the whole thing. God basically is addressing the nation of Israel through Moses. And he's saying to them, you know what, you, you, you left me and you went after idols. You've been worshiping things that aren't even real. And he doesn't even call them gods. He says they are not gods. The reason he says that is because there's only one God, <laughs> the true God. He says they are no gods. And you have thereby aroused my jealousy. This is God speaking to the nation Israel. And so then he says, you know what? Now comes payback time. He says, I'm going to arouse your jealousy, you who claim that you and you alone are God's people, because remember, that's what Israel thought. I mean, 
Everybody else was doomed. It was Israel who was be saved. It was Israel who was God's chosen people. They had that understanding. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to arouse your jealousy, you who claim to be my people and my people alone, by calling somebody who's not my people. <laughs> I'm going to call somebody who's a foolish nation. And that's what the apostle quotes here. So God had made it quite plain that when he gave the Ten Commandments, if you remember, one of the things that God kind of shared with us about himself through the Ten Commandments, do you remember that he was what? A jealous God. So this isn't coming out of nowhere. They knew this. They should have understood this. And so Paul, once again, is is pointing to Moses. And he's saying, hey, Remember Moses, the guy that gave us the Ten Commandments? Remember one of the Ten Commandments? He's a jealous God. You shouldn't have any other gods before me. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, he says in Exodus 20. He won't tolerate any other because you know why? There is no other. There is no other God. And therefore, the greatest of all sins, basically, according to the Bible, is to worship anything other than the true God. See, he alone is to be worshipped, beloved. And he will not share his glory with anybody else. You say, well, that sounds kind of egotistical. That sounds kind of selfish. I mean, we're talking about God here. Okay, we're not talking about a human being. So in his perfect righteousness, in his perfect ability to be God, all this thing, this isn't a sinful, prideful thing on God. You know, like, worship me. I mean, if we said that, that would be prideful, right? But not so with God. Because, first of all, he's stating truth. He is the only God. There is no other God. And so he's not claiming something that's not true. But they had been worshiping what they call no gods. And they aroused his anger. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to arouse your anger. I'm going to arouse your jealousy. And he says, I will take hold of a people whom you regard as nobody. Who was that? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. I mean, the basic person involved in Judaism, you talk about Gentiles, they're, they're like dogs. I mean, they don't even count as people in their mentality. And so he says, I'm going to take a people who's not even a people. You don't even consider them human beings. And I'm going to take them and I'm going to accept them. I'm going to save them. Just to get you a little ticked off. I'm going to take people whom you regard as utterly foolish. Why were they foolish? Why were the Gentiles considered foolish? Because they didn't have what? They didn't have the word of God given to them. See? The word of God was given to Moses, the Jewish, the Israel. They were to be the caretakers of God's word. Unfortunately, they didn't do what God told them to do with the word. They took it and they hoarded it. (laughs) They said, oh, wow, God gave us this. This is a special gift, you know. All you poor people that didn't get it, sorry, you're on your own. This is us. We are God's chosen people. And he gave us his word. And so they began to worship the word rather than do what it says. Sometimes we end up in that same spot. Forget that our life as Christians is is a life that's called to be what? Obedient to the things of God. It's not good enough just to read your Bible every day. It should have an effect on how you live. It's not good enough to come to church once a week. It should have an effect on how you relate to others outside of these four walls. And I remember in a church one time, years ago, when I was in youth ministry, we had a gentleman in our church who was involved in a certain business. And I was kind of new to the church, but I knew what his business was, and I remember talking to somebody who wasn't a believer, and we started talking about certain things, and they asked me, a question that related to this guy's business. I said, hey, I got, 
I, you know, we have this guy that goes to our church, and he'll help you out with this, you know. I don't, I don't even forget what it was. And I'll never forget this guy. So he goes, he goes to your church? I'm like, uh, yeah. Why? Oh, man, that guy, he's ripped off people here. I mean, you know, the, his, his reputation just dismantled everything I said to this guy. See? And so we need to be careful that we're not just kind of worshiping our Christian religion, that we're actually doing it. We're obeying the gospel. We're doing what God tells us to do. And so here he says, you know what? I'm going to arouse your jealousy. I'm going to arouse your anger with this group of people that's not even considered by you to be people, and they're, they're considered to be foolish. And so he says, you know, they're not even a nation. It doesn't mean that the Gentiles weren't organized into nations. They were. It means that they weren't a special site, a special nation in the eyes of God, as, Israel's, as Israel was. I mean, see, we, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to remember that God did set his love on Israel. That he did choose them to be his people. Unfortunately, they messed the whole deal up. And see, that's, that's what's happening. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to go to somebody who you don't even consider a nation. I'm going to reach out to the Gentiles. The Jews were among the nation that God had selected and had worked in and through for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, all the way from Abraham up to Jesus Christ that time. Now, all of a sudden, if Christianity were to be true, what happens to their privileged position with God? Well, it's called into question. See? It's kind of like you working for a company and you're, you know, hobsnobbing it with the boss all the time. And young little college boy whippersnapper shows up and pretty soon he's hobsnobbing it with the boss and here's stuffed in the back somewhere. You're going, hey, wait, what's going on here? You know, this isn't right. Wait a minute. I worked for this company for, you know, and you start. That's how they felt. They felt wrong about this whole situation. They thought, how could he go to a, a nation that's not even a nation? And they're foolish. They don't have any understanding, he says, because of their, their pagan ways. Um, they were, they were really spiritually ignorant, a lot of Gentiles back then. I mean, they had all their vain philosophies and, and all their, their, their learning and all that, but basically they were ignorant, pagan people, spiritually. And the Jews knew that. They understood nothing about the true God. They didn't have the law. God gave that to us, the Jewish nation was saying. He didn't give it to them. So they don't even know the ways of God. And so you see that played out in their pagan depravity and the way they lived their lives. And the Jews would just look down at that and go, oh, those poor people. <laughs> They're not even a people. They're worse than dogs. They don't have the privilege that we have. And so in Romans 2, when you, when you get to the point where these, these Jews are kind of expressing their superiority... In Romans 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this, You rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. You know his will and approve what is superior. And so that was their mentality. And so when someone came along like the ignorant Gentiles and God said, No, I'm going to choose them now. I'm going to start to save them. That just made their eyes roll back in their head. They couldn't even conceive of such a thing. And they were, also, they were also talked about as not only just not even being a nation, not having understanding, but they didn't seek God. Um, and that's how they would describe their religious life. If you talk to a Jewish people, oh, yes, I, I seek God. You know, I do this, I do that. They go through all the rigmarole. They try to obey his revealed law, and they realized that they couldn't, so then they started coming up with laws of their own. They started to rewrite the law of God, so that when they kept the, the rewritten law, the oral law, well, that made them feel pretty good. You know, you can't carry a stick over a certain distance, it's over a certain weight on the Sabbath. So they could do that. And see, when Jesus came on the scene, he just rocked their world when he said, oh, you, you've heard this, but let me tell you, right, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, these Gentiles were basically 
you know, happy-go-lucky pagans. They had no clue. And they didn't really care about anything else. And yet God, in spite of themselves, was starting to save them. Now, you know, Paul himself probably worked pretty hard at reaching out to his Jewish brothers. We know that because his heart's desire is clear for us. He tells us that. But you know what? It wasn't working. They weren't accepting Paul's message. They weren't accepting the message of Christ. And so it's not that they didn't know it. It's not that they didn't understand it. I mean, God had said to the children of Israel in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's how special Israel was to God. That word known in Amos there means to know intimately. And so he didn't know the Gentiles that way. But he did when they were saved. All of a sudden, wow, all these benefits that only the Jewish people had began to kind of brush over onto the, the Gentile people. And they started to get saved. Some of these people were considered foolish because they were uninstructed in the word of God. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus is telling a parable of the wicked husbandman and all, all the things that go on there. But the one verse that I want to read for you this morning is verse 43 of Romans or Matthew 21. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day, and given to a people producing its fruit. Jesus made it very clear to the chief priests and the elders during his day. He said, you know what? You think you got this thing wrapped up. You don't. You're doing it all wrong. You're not obeying what God told you to do. And because of that, God is going to take the kingdom from you and he's going to give it to other people, these Gentiles. So instead of them receiving this kingdom, all of a sudden the kingdom's open to all who would put their faith or trust in Christ. That's why when Paul would say something like, whosoever puts their faith or trust in Christ, whosoever confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved. The Jewish people that were listening to that saying, wait a minute, whosoever, that means the Gentiles too. That's right. I mean, are you glad that the gospel is not limited to a certain age or a certain nationality. or a certain, the, the gospel is open to everybody who would put their faith or trust in Christ. See, and we can't ever get so comfortable in our doctrine of, of election and our doctrine of, of predestination and all those doctrines are good, but we can't get so comfortable there that we forget that, you know, the Bible does say, whosoever will do this can be saved. Because some people get so heavy into the doctrine of election, they forget that God has told us to go out and to preach the gospel to the world. We don't know who is the elect and who isn't. So we go out and we preach to everybody. And when John preached, he demanded from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who wanted to be baptized in in Matthew 3, verse 8, he says, you know what, you need to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, I need to see a change here. I'm not seeing a change. I'm seeing the religious kind of jargon go on as normal. And John was saying, no, this, you don't just come and be baptized and then that, that, that's how it works. No, you, you, there has to be a change in your life. There has to be transformation. And so Paul wanted his Jewish brethren here to understand that 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 it's it's by grace through God's unconditional promise that we are saved and you know what it doesn't mean that God's done with Israel completely we're going to get into that when we get into verse or chapter 11 because his unconditional promises are still there one day Israel will return to God and bear fruit for his kingdom We're going to see that in chapter 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
when the fullness of Gentiles has come, all Israel will be saved. Now, does all Israel mean every single Jew? No, obviously. But we'll get into that in a couple weeks. And so Paul here is pointing out to them that, you know what? Don't say you didn't understand. Because Moses went over this over and over and over again. I find it interesting in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter calls the church this. He says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession. See, when the Jews read that, they said, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) You're cutting into our deal here. Right, because we're doing it the prescribed way. We're bringing forth fruits of repentance. We're not trusting in our own religiosity. We're not trusting in our own self-righteousness. We're going to trust what what the gospel says, that we don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves, and we need to put our faith and trust in somebody who has all the righteousness that there ever was, that the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to put our faith and trust in him. And so these, these Gentiles started getting saved, and they started being called the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You don't think that caused a little consternation in the heart of the Jews back then? It definitely did. See, it was doing exactly what God wanted it to do, to cause them to be jealous, to get them angry. I mean, do you ever think about it? I mean, the Jews have the scriptures. They have all the prophecies that we know to be true about Christ. And yet when you witness to someone who is of the Jewish faith, more times than not, they're blind. They are absolutely blinded to the truth of who Christ is. And it's, it's, to me, it's just testimony that, you know what, when someone is converted, it has to be God who converts them. Because here's people that have all the information. They have it right there. It was only given to them originally. But they missed it. It breaks your heart. And the only way that we can bear fruits of repentance is through the Holy Spirit of God. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus said. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a little bit. No, I doesn't say that. Well, you can do most, no. It says you can do nothing. No thing, not one thing can you do apart from me, Christ says. See, the nation to whom the kingdom would be given is the Christian church. It's the Christian people who are the people of God today the kingdom has been taken from that foolish nation of the Jews and it's been given to somebody who they didn't even consider a people and now we have become God's holy nation his peculiar people and so all that has been taught by Moses it's been prophesied but then if that's that's not enough. He says, okay, I'm not just going to touch on what Moses said. I'm going to touch on what Isaiah said, the law and the prophets. The third excuse, they were religious. You can hear them just start saying, well, wait, okay, we heard it. Yeah, I get it. Okay, I guess some of those prophecies are true, Paul. I guess we kind of understand that. But but what about our religion? What about all the things that we've done? What about all the good things we've done? We have all of our traditions. We do all this stuff. See, that's why it's so hard for a religious person to come to Christ. I mean, I remember before I was saved and someone was sharing the gospel with me. And I remember thinking, wait a minute. Okay, for, for 18 years of my life, 19 years of my life, you know, I went to this other church. And I did so faithfully a couple times a week usually. Went to confession, went to communion, got, went through the catechism, did all that stuff. Everybody else was out playing. I'm in there doing all this stuff. Doing the altar boy thing, you know, missed out on things in school because, you know, when, when someone passed away or whatever, they'd have to come in and say, oh, you, you got a service, you got to go, you know, and they'd come in and yank you out of school and you'd have to go do this service, ring the little bell up on the altar. And I'm thinking, man, all this stuff I memorized, all this stuff I learned, and then all of a sudden somebody says, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, I didn't feel real good about that. I felt kind of like I was ripped off. I felt like it was bait and switch. You know, after I got saved, beloved, you know, 
everything within me wanted to go become a priest. That's what I was going to do. I was going to go become a priest and I was going to expose the whole thing. I mean, I'd seriously consider that. And thank goodness for, I think it was actually Pastor Westgate. You all met Pastor Westgate. He, he told me, he goes, you know, Steve, he goes, if, if God's leading you to do something like that, I'm not going to stand your way. But, you know, uh, you might want to get a little training first. You might want to go to Bible college. You might want to, you know, because that's kind of a deceitful beginning of a ministry, pretending to be something you're not. And I thought, well, he's got a point there. But see, can you imagine being steeped in all this religion and someone comes along and says, you know what? Yeah, uh, sorry, pal, that's not the way this is. Okay, well, what do I do? You don't do anything. You just look to the cross. Christ has already done everything for you. There's nothing you can do. As a matter of fact, you can't even do anything to be saved. It's God who saves you. See, we want to take some credit. And so here, their religiosity was just kind of eating away at them. And so Paul says, okay, I'm going I'm to deal with this one next. And he says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say. In other words, he says, you know what? Moses said this. If that's not enough, let me tell you what Isaiah had to say. And he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Wait a minute. All this seeking, all this training, all this stuff that I've done up to now is all for naught? You're going to give this to somebody who never sought you? What about my religiosity? And then he says, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I wasn't asking to be saved. I was just going along in my life doing my own thing. And all of a sudden, one of my brothers gets saved. And I hear the gospel for the first time. And I thought, what in the world is this? Truly, if this were true, I would have heard it before this time. And it took weeks of God working in my heart to me finally realizing, you know what, there's no other way. There's no way out of this fix I have myself in because of my own sin. When you talk about self-righteous, man, I was, I was way self-righteous. Because my comparison were all my bad brothers. <laughs> Some of them were pretty bad, let me tell you. And I never did what they did. So that was my my level of comparison and it wasn't until god spoke to my heart and said you know what listen you idiot don't compare yourself to these other guys you compare yourself to me i'm holy are you holy no and i remember how how, how good do i have to be to get this salvation and the pastor's saying well see you have to be perfect <laughs> what no way then it dawned on me wait a minute christ was perfect so what this guy is telling me to do is put my faith and trust in what Christ has done. Okay, and there's nothing else I add to? No. See, it was something that God supernaturally imposed upon my life. And see, here these, these Gentiles, they weren't seeking God. They weren't searching after God. And God said, I'm going to save them. Just to show you how wrong you are, Jewish people. Don't trust in your religion. I mean, think about it. They were proud as a nation. We alone are God's people. So God provoked them by some group of people who weren't even considered a nation. They were very proud in their knowledge of, of Scripture. If you talk to any Jewish per person who's involved in, in Judaism to any extent, they're very prideful when it comes to their knowledge of Scripture. John 5, 39, it's kind of like we alone have God's law. That's what they're saying. And so God provokes them to anger by those who are without a nation and they don't have any understanding. They're a foolish group of people, these Gentiles. And they were also relying on their own works to gain righteousness. And so God says, you know what? I'm really going to mess you up. I'm going I'm to start saving people that aren't even involved in righteousness. Pure pagans. And they're not seeking after me at all. And you're going to start seeing them get saved. See, religion will not save anyone. It won't. That's why this series is called God's Way of Righteousness. 
because there's a way that seems right unto men, but you know what? It ends in death. See, we can feel good about what we do in life, all we want, but that's not going to save us. So he knocks down their excuse about not hearing. He knocks down their excuse about not understanding. He says, hey, you know what? Throw your religion out the door. And then finally, they probably said, well, wait a minute. You know, God hasn't been patient with us. And so the fourth excuse here, God wasn't patient, he addresses. He says, but of Israel, he says, this is God, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That word disobedient there literally means to contradict. It means to speak against. Throughout the history of Israel, Israel had for the most part contradicted and opposed the truth that God had revealed to them every time they had the opportunity. And yet he continues to be gracious. He continues to be patient. He continues to stretch out his hand to her. In Luke chapter 14, verses 21 to 24, when the slave basically reported the various excuses that were given, it says, The head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be full. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. What's he saying? He said, you know what? All you, basically, the Jewish folks that were kind of invited in, they didn't want to come. They didn't want to hear the truth. And so God is saying, you know what? Forget them. We're going to go to a different group. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus lamented this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, listen to this, and stones those who are sent to her. It wasn't that God wasn't reaching out his hand to them. It's when they did, what did they do? They stoned God's messengers. That's how hard-hearted they were. So he says, these people kill the prophets. They stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were what? Unwilling. See, at the same time as God saves us divinely, solely by his power, his grace, he doesn't drag us into heaven kicking and screaming, I don't want to be saved. I don't want to go, God, or you're coming because I'm sovereign. It doesn't work that way. Somehow God works through our volition, through our will, even though our will is captivated by sin before we come to Christ. Somehow God even overrides that. And I remember when I prayed a prayer of salvation, I wasn't praying this prayer because someone was putting my thumb under the screw saying, you know, you need to pray this or you're going to hell, you know. They didn't make me do it. I did it of my own free volition. And yet I completely understood the idea that, you know what, this had to be from God. Because this is something I was looking for. I never heard this before. And God did a supernatural work in my heart. And he brought my volition, my will, right in accord with his. See, we want to separate those two so many times. Well, it says right here that, hey, you know what? God reached out to them over and over and over again in Matthew 23, 37. And he tried to gather them, and yet they were unwilling It's not that God wasn't patient. They were unwilling. See, this speaks to the very compassion that God has for us as unbelievers even. And see, this is what Paul wants them to understand. He's quoted from the Old Testament here several times. Why? Because he's trying to get them to see, look, this isn't something new. The message of the gospel is not something new. The message that God is compassionate to a bunch of Gentiles is not something new. But he wants us to see also the kind of compassion that God has for us. And in that verse, when he says, all day long I have held out my hands, 
that tells me that, you know what? God's compassion, first of all, it's continuous. It doesn't have a limit. It's continuous. God pictures himself as holding out his hands toward Israel for an entire day. I mean, have you ever put your hands out and just held them there? And try to do it as long as you can? I mean, it's easy for maybe five, ten minutes. But then they start getting a little heavy. And you start realizing, wow, okay. And you stop and you think, the day with the Lord is a thousand years. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the idea that God is continually reaching out his hands toward Israel. Not just for a few moments. It's continuous. Yet he says, I've done it all day long. I've held out. I've stretched out my hands to you. I mean, the day of God's grace has already lasted over 4,000 years. If you begin with somebody like Abraham, even longer with Adam and Eve, and yet God's grace continues. I mean, isn't that a blessing? That God's compassion, his grace doesn't just wear out. The day of grace is not ended. And it will not end until Jesus Christ returns. The final time for judgment. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't help but appeal to your heart in a personal way this morning. You know, if you haven't come to Christ, the day of God's grace has been continuous for you. Forget all the, the time before. Think only of the years of your life. During that time, God has outstretched, he's reached out his hand to you time and time and time again. Maybe even during your childhood when your Christian mother or father or grandmother began to tell you about Christ began to urge to give urge you to give your life to him maybe you have influences of of godly influences in your life even now it's continuing i mean if you're not yet a disciple of christ if you've yet to put your faith and trust in jesus Stop and ask yourself this question. How many times have I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many sermons have I sat through? Think how continuous, how, how long-suffering the grace of God has been with you. And please remember this. If you reject the gospel... Every time you hear the gospel, every time you hear a warning, every time you hear a message, it will rise up to, to render you without excuse on the day of God's judgment. If you perish, no one will be responsible for it but yourself. Because God's grace is continuous. It's also compassionate. It's compassionate. The love that God has for sinners is not only a continuing love, but it's, it's, a, it's a compassionate love. It's filled with passion for you. And this is what he's saying here. He, he's constantly stretching out his hand. It's, it's meant to portray compassion. I mean, when you see a little child crying, you know, you don't, you know, just cast them aside. No, you usually get down on one knee and say, hey, buddy, what's wrong? You know, you reach out to them in compassion. Or maybe a loved one who needs a kind touch or a kind word. See, it's the gesture of Jesus who was on the cross when he reached out to us from the cross. I mean, do you ever think of the hands of Jesus, what he did with those hands? You see him in the Gospels all the time. One day Jesus was approached by a leper, a man with this horrible disease, a person no one would ever think of touching. They ran the other way. Matthew 8, 3, Jesus, we're told, reached out his hand and touched the man. 
On another occasion, two blind men were asked for healing. Jesus touched their eyes, and their sight was restored in Matthew 9. On another occasion, Peter was walking over the water, just doing what Jesus told him to do. And all of a sudden, he was overcome by the tumultuous waves. And immediately, it says in Matthew 14, 31, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. See, these are, these are signs of compassion. I mean, I think I probably would have let Peter go down and fished him out of the water, you know, to teach him a lesson. But that's not what our Lord did. Jesus even put his hands on little children and blessed them in Mark 10, 16. And even right when he was ascending after his resurrection, it says he lifted up his hands and blessed those who were watching in Luke 24. See, Jesus' hands were all about healing. They were all about blessing. They were all about saving. They're compassionate hands. It's also costly. Costly. The compassion of God is costly. And this is the last thing. Those hands that bear the imprint of the nails that were brutally pounded through them as Jesus was affixed to the cross to bear the penalty for our sins. I mean, think about it. I don't know of any other God that has wounds. No other God has paid the price for our sin because of his continuing compassionate love for us except Jesus Christ. See, unbelieving Jews misunderstood that they rejected God, they rejected Christ, they, they rejected that saving faith because of their own self-righteousness, because they were prejudiced, they were prideful. And they failed as God's witness nation. I mean, what is our problem? Can we sit here this morning and say we haven't heard the gospel? No, we've heard it. We saw that two weeks ago. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Can we say that we didn't understand the gospel? No, I think we probably understand it all too well, to be honest with you. That's why we become frustrated with those who have rejected it. And even sometimes with God who refuses to play by our rules, take note of our accomplishments. See, our problem is not that we have misunderstood grace. The problem is, is that we've rejected grace because we will not bow our stiff necks, our disobedient, obstinate hearts to the gospel that Christ has given us. But God continues to reach down through Christ to show us our sin, to show us how desperately we need a Savior. You think the Apostle Paul, here's a guy that was out murdering Christians. And when he finally abandoned his own self-righteousness as a Pharisee, and he came to God as he was freely offered in Christ, he discovered that grace that only God can give. And this letter that we're going through even now in Romans is the testimony of God's work of grace in his life. See, if you're making excuses, beloved, if you're still boasting about how righteous you are, or how good you are, or how religious you are, abandon it. Leave it at the cross. Forget your excuses. Come to the one who has loved you and died for you in spite of all those excuses, in spite of all your sin. He continues to reach out to you with the good news of the gospel. And I pray that today might be the day you put your faith, your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray for Israel as a nation. Lord, it's so hard to see their disbelief, their unbelief, when they've been giving all these privileges in so many different ways. And yet, we're really no different. We live in this country with wonderful privileges. And yet, there's so many people who reject the message of salvation by grace 
through Christ alone. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts as we continue to worship you here this morning. Pray that you would show us our need, not only in a Savior to be saved, but, Father, after we're saved, in the, in the Spirit's work of sanctification. Help us to never trust in our own goodness. Help us to never trust in our own religiosity, our own self-righteousness. Lord, help us to understand that, that it's only by grace that we're saved through the work of Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.